Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. Hello. Thank you very much for tuning in to this particular show, Compassionate Capitalist Podcast, The Black Lives Economic Story, Past, Present, and Future. So true equality comes with economic prosperity. And if you've listened to my show at all in the past, or if you hopefully will listen more in the future, you know, there's three things that I I believe that I have sort of are at my core of what I do for my business, what I do when I educate entrepreneurs and investors, what I do with my writings, what I do with my political activism and social activism. And that is that wealth, the greatest source of wealth is created through entrepreneurism. The next greatest source of wealth is created through investors that invest in successful entrepreneurs. And across the the large scape of success and failure of entrepreneurs and investors and wealth creation, there's all kinds of barriers all over the place for people from, you know, not just race, but uh, at their own economic basis. I mean, the whole reason why we have the Jobs Act, because there is an inherent barrier between entrepreneurs and investors, and even for investors to create wealth, if they didn't already have a great deal of wealth. It's no secret particularly in American society, that money makes money. And it's easier to get wealthier when you're already wealthy. Uh, So, you know, those are all sort of, to me, kind of part of the given. And I also, for the longest time, when I was running my angel investor group for a decade, and even before that, when I was in the corporate world, I always thought money was green. That when it came to an investor making a decision about investing in this particular deal or that particular deal race had really nothing to do with it. I also didn't think that, that women, there was a bias on women as a women entrepreneur myself and running a, a kind of being in the old boys club, running an angel investor group. I, you know, I just thought green was green. <laughs> and uh, I was naive. <laughs> I'll just say it. So as I've gained older and as I am, a Karen that falls into the, that whole, you want to call it a slur, whatever it is, but the Karens of the world, because I'm middle-aged, I'm white, and my name is actually Karen. But anybody that spent more than five minutes with me <laughs> knows that I don't fall anywhere close to the lumping of categories of, of people calling certain people Karens. But I had the the impetus, the, the I guess the, the the flash, that moment of, of clarity that I needed to do a show on this topic because I do have some insights in it. I'm really good at researching. And um, a couple of things that happened recently besides the protests and all the circumstances and the things that we're going through right now as a nation – uh, where I have participated in the protests in my community, I peacefully protesting, um, walking arm in arm with my friends, brothers and sisters of color, 
Uh, my daughter has been even more active in it, so I'm proud to to say that I have um, raised her in that way. Uh, so I just um, I felt like though there was a lot where I saw like a local brewery and I saw various um, businesses coming out and just going on the record whether they're they're big, large, small, what's their impact on the community, what's their voice in the marketplace, but they're just coming out and saying Black Lives Matter. And so my goal out of this was, one, to go on the record for Cougar Ranch Capital Holdings and everything that I am about, KarenRams.co, that's my website, and the book that I have written, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, there's no race element to it, it's just green is green, but what I will write in the future scaling, I will incorporate how to overcome certain challenges in there and the things that I found within researching for this call. And the other ones that I'm going to write in the future, I, in the, I felt like I could had a story to tell when it came to um, women entrepreneurs and the struggles that they have and women investors and sort of the barriers that have been there for that. And I would write a book on that. And I didn't think I could really do something about black enterprise because I'm not black. And I've never actually lived the stuff that I'm going to talk about today. But for for whatever reason, for the 20 years that I've been influencing this marketplace for, or not quite yet, 20 years, you know, to, yeah, I guess 15, to, you know, I have been called upon and my expertise has been sought out on number, numerous occasions. Maybe because the, the black folks that sought me out knew that. I was aware of my privilege and and um, was willing to stand side by side to help those within the minority community to overcome the biases that they were faced with. And and you know and over time I've become much more even more aware of how deep and systemic it is. And so I had a a friend send to me. Uh, a video that I watched that was uh, about black empowerment. Uh, and, you know, I contacted him. We, we had a long conversation. He wants me to help him. He, he was involved, very much involved in minority economic initiatives here in Atlanta before he moved up to the Baltimore area. And he wants to do something more within that space. And he wants my, you know, I said, whatever you need, I'm happy to help. But he had sent me a video uh, that Byron F. Wilson. Okay, so it's uh, it is a he has a, I guess he's been along. I had not heard of him before. It was something that I I agreed with most of what he said. Uh, I felt like voting was still very very important, but the point that he made in the video, um, which is it may not be linked in my show notes. So as I talk about the different references I'm using today, I'm going to be talking about I'm going to do show notes, which are, is the blurb about the podcast, but then also on my blog. So if you go to karenrands.co slash blog, this will be the first one up there after it goes live here. It's live now. Um, but after it gets the RSS feed goes out around three or so, 
Um, and I'll have more links in that. I'll go back and add the rest of these, but I'm limited in the tool that I use for my podcast to show this. But he he had a, he had he his point was that you can't just the, the the gains that were started in we weren't done in the 1950s or the 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. That that really was the foundation. And, and what I noticed when I went back and, re, and researched it, there has been this ebb, ebb and flow of a, economic advancement in, in regardless of the oppression that the white community and the white leadership at that time, elected leaders at that time, forced upon the black community that the the black community was able to maneuver around there and prosper until another wave came and hit. And, and we have seen that again and again, and I'm going to go through a chronological on this. So you kind of see it. And that's where the systemic piece of this becomes so troubling because yes, yes, there are successful black entrepreneurs out there. There are, successful venture capital funds that focus on black enterprise. Yes, it's all of that. But you can't on one hand point to that and say it's not a problem. And then on the other hand, blame the black communities for what goes on in the inner cities and the poor schools and the fragmented families and all the things, the, 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 the the high high level of incarceration of black men to white men you you can't have your cake and eat it too yes there has been there is an ability for inspiring motivated well educated or just downright hungry entrepreneurs to establish highly successful legitimate businesses you know, but they're, but uh, but they—it's because they were able to escape those, or because of things that their ancestors did, their grandfathers did, were able to help them get through that. But but as we just, it continues to happen, and we are on a threshold right now of having something where we can make progress in so many ways, not only on the the judicial system. And our criminal justice system, which I'm not going to focus on right now, but on our social economic systems and understanding what that means. And all of us coming together to hold our elected officials accountable that the well-meaning things that sometimes that they do out of – because they're naive. They believe people are good and they believe people will do right like I do. But then you find the people that have evil in their heart. And they have ulterior motives that's based on a perception of supremacy because of the color of their skin. And it's not just to think that they're superior. They have to enact laws to try to keep the black communities and policies to keep the black community from being able to rise to equal, not being superior, no one's superior, but being able to, so if it's, if they're not equal, okay, if, if, if it's not true, but I'm saying hypothetically, right, 
if the vote didn't matter, why would you try to stop the vote so hard? And I'm going to talk about that. And if, if the ability for black people to succeed and achieve their full potential didn't exist innately, then why do you have to try so hard and for so many decades to prohibit them from being able to achieve their full potential? You know, it's like it's hard to swim when you've got weights on your ankles. So besides my passion that you may have picked up on, what else qualifies me for this? Okay, so let me just give a couple of little things that you wouldn't know because they're not necessarily part of the history that I talk about. But, you know, when I first when I first started Launch Funding Network, which is now a brand within my Cougarand Capital Holdings, and just before I took over the network of business angels and investors, I was invited, and part of the reason why I did that, I was invited by two gentlemen um, that were part of, they were two black gentlemen that were part, that I had encountered in various different business dealings. Jim Harris, I became a business partner with, and Jerry McGorry, is somebody that I've tried to do joint ventures and alliances with, even up to recently with the Oz funds. And they introduced me to G-Men, which was the Georgia Micro Enterprise Network. And most of the people within G-Men um, were black, and mo- and many of them were targeted towards doing it was targeted micro enterprise loans within the black community. And I got introduced to the whole idea of economic development uh, hub zones, um, all, you know, the set asides, the eight A program. When I started my business, I'd gone through sort of the training on some of that stuff to understand about the set-asides. And so through that, I I participated in an economic development conference to educate those lenders about angel investment and about how um, venture capital works so they can understand when they did a micro loan that this might be the next set of funding for them. And then from that, I got involved with the Minority Business Development Center. Once I had started the – I took over the MBA and I, and we were doing events. We married up with the Minority Business Development Center, and we would do a quarterly event where black-owned businesses would come in and pitch to angel investors that were part of my group. And I would invite other investors around Atlanta area, and we would come, and we would do these pitch events specifically for minority business development. For within it was at Georgia Tech, it was an office in Georgia Tech. Minority business development centers were aligned with them, and and it, the Minority Business Development Authority, and um and I would organize these events, and then that led to me meeting Lucy Holyfield, who had been brought on. She was an economic development person out of the university systems, uh, some some place in the north, and had um come down to Atlanta and was working with the Atlanta Urban League. And I was asked to come in and help champion a economic develop a entrepreneur development program. Um, where, and also to develop a angel investor network for black investors to invest in black entrepreneurs. And that way we called it the progressive investor network pen and so we started this, and we would have these roundtables, and it was quite enlightening talking to entrepreneurs that had raised lots of money um, and that were black entrepreneurs and talking about the challenges they had if they were an 8A certified company 
to be able to maintain their minority status because if you if you end up having outside money like venture capital money that's not minority, then you can lose the 8A status if you end up having less than 49% of your company and you are the founder black owner of the company or original founder of the company. You know, so these are all things that I was like learning along the way. So, you know, on one hand, here we have, I'm going to come back to this, but here we have the 8A, which is designed to give minority and disadvantaged businesses a leg up, an opportunity to compete. But as they get bigger, and maybe they're not so much disadvantaged, but they're still, because now they're bigger, but they are still a minority-owned company, they can no longer qualify for that same business that made them successful if by doing that they had to take in outside money that was from a race other than black or disadvantaged. Okay. And I'm not, I don't, I don't want to get into a lot of details of how I've encountered that over the years, but it it has, I got one right now uh, The company I'm working with is trying to get funding to do an acquisition of a, it's a disabled vet business, which counts. That's also counts. But in order to maintain their government contracts, they have to have a, a minority, they have to have a disabled veteran that owns 51% or more of the company. And so that creates a challenge because, you know, that is their business. And this the guy wants to sell it. So he has to sell it to another, another disabled veteran that qualifies or else that business basically evaporates and he wants to protect his employees. So that same issue is, a, is issues that, that black enterprises deal with all the time, particularly if they're using, if part of their business is government funding or if it's um, like city, like say, for example, the Omni or the Rural Congress Center, they do eight day set asides. It's more of a goal now than not, but you know, a department, uh, the uh, the DOD, uh, Department of Transportation will certify somebody, and then you can use that to get other contracts with a, a big companies, large company companies, IBM. You know, they they didn't have a mandate to it, but they had a um, a goal, a shareholder commitment to have a certain amount of their resellers, a certain amount of their vendors be minority owned. And so, you know, that's a, a well-intentioned rule or a guideline, but can, but inadvertently it prohibits the ability for co- black owned enterprises to fully grow and thrive. They're artificially kept small or restricted where they have to, they, they they just can't they can't take the traditional sources of growth that other people have if they were if that was part of how they initially got their business and when I advise companies on raising capital, I always say you and investors if if this is critical part of your growth strategy has to be that you can go beyond these government contracts that are dependent on this because when you raise capital there's ways to work around it to a certain degree but at some point you're no lo- you may be black run you may have been black founded. But you're no longer a black enterprise if you have less than 50, by law, if you have less than 51% that's owned by minorities. Okay, so there's that. So then also I was called into um, during the last couple of years of the Obama administration, uh, there was, I got invited to this roundtable think tank thing with the SBA that was his representative, uh, President Obama's representative. 
they had done analysis and they said there's a certain amount of um, cities that have the greatest potential for black entrepreneurship and enterprise to grow. And we want to go see what kind of resources in Atlanta are needed, financial, people, whatever resources in order to them grow and succeed and get their piece of the pie, so to speak. So um, I think it was Phoenix, Arizona, Atlanta, Georgia. There was like five cities that they had targeted. So they came into this 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 particular um, thing, and there was I was the only I there was two women in the room, me being one of them, and I was white, and there was two white people in the room, one white guy, and me. He, both of those other folks were with the SBA. Um, I think one was actually might have been the Minority Business Development Centers, and one was SBA, and then the others were various successful business entrepreneurs uh, and African-American businesses that had some insight and they did not adhere for the most part. We really, we had too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, my recommendation was to target somebody like a Paul judge or somebody that was a, a highly successful black entrepreneur in Atlanta that would go put their name on. We could do what we had done, what, what we had seen done at Georgia Tech. Now, granted, Georgia Tech had been 10 years in the making of all their incubators and the, and the, the um, ATDC, Atlanta Technology Development Center, that was housed at Georgia Tech, and all the incubators and accelerators are around that hub. You know, they had taken the money. They'd been buying up that area downtown, and they had been redeveloping it, and really with an emphasis on entrepreneurism. And that had we had not seen that over at the HBCUs. You know, Atlanta is home to outstanding HBCUs. We got Morehouse, we got Spelman. You know, so there's uh, there was, but why wasn't there anything like that going on over there? And we had had some of the campuses get shuttered because of financial reasons, and so there was empty buildings there. There was there was a, a prime opportunity to go do this, and it was like we we just need to. I I don't know those people. You know, um, I, you know, they're not on my short list, but some of these guys that were in this room acted like they were. And there's, you know, highly successful um, professional athletes. We have highly successful musicians in Atlanta. We have highly successful, you know, uh, one of the first uh, black-owned banks, the Atlanta Life Insurance. I mean, there's a history of black wealth in Atlanta that could be drawn upon to to put some kind of start a matching fund at an accelerator in these HBCUs that would, would draw upon Spelman had a robotics program. There was, you know, a number of um, a, a deep biochemical biochemistry and development thing within Morehouse. There was a lot of good stuff coming out of there, but there was no way to develop it. We also had the opportunity in Atlanta with film tech, right? With Tyler Perry being as success, highly successful as he is, why not have something that, that we would develop a unique footprint within what is Atlanta and Georgia known for and entrench our film community with film tech, entrepreneurism, all of that stuff. And there, it, it not, it, not, clearly nothing ever happened, okay? And then I was called into a, uh, another think tank thing that was done and was funded by a uh, – to understand why women don't have more entrepreneur opportunities and why is it more service businesses and not tech businesses? So that's my foundation to say that's why I feel that 
I have had, I've touched on this in the past. I've been an, an, a sponge for learning and um, growing upon this and understanding and, um, and willing to have open conversations about race with my friends of, that are of color and um, open permission for them to let me know and educate me when I miss something, when I'm, I, I think I get it, but I don't get it. And so, so then I also had, so then, so I told you there was this one about economic empowerment, this video, Wilson, um, participating, actually, you know, declaring my business. And then there was a third one, a friend of mine had, um, had given, had posted this article, had given me this article about, um, uh, that there is no racism because of all these programs that have been put in place and that it's a, it's false to consider that there is race racism out there. Uh, racial charges distract from the real problems of black Americans. And it's an African-American professor that says blacks hold their fate in their own hands. So again, going back to this idea that, you have black folks have all the tools that they need in order to lift themselves up by the bootstraps and move on. And I'm going to come back to the systemic racism. And so let's just sort of look at that, right? So we have the end of the Civil War, okay, and the emancipation Excuse me, Emancipation Proclamation. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then you had the Reconstruction that was started that ultimately um, led to it was. Uh, it, I guess they they felt it was done come eighteen seventy seven. And you had what started to be it, it part of the compromise that was done back then in in getting the states, the southern states, to join the union again. They had started with 10% had to pledge loyalty to the union and not pledge to the Confederacy. They had to, um, they had to, you know, then that, that was, but they resisted that. Then it sort of spread. We had more states, you know, that weren't originally part of the Civil War that were becoming states. But they had, they had a situation where they, you know, were using black labor for their prosperity. Um, and so as part of the, um, as part of the compromise, if you will, 1877, they allowed it. They allowed the they allowed laws at a local level to be implemented. They started with black codes. It was called black codes, and then it they became Jim Crow laws that everybody knows of. And so the Jim Crow is is a reference to this. Um, Jumping Jim Crow minstrel. So it was 
implied just from the very beginning by the very state of the name because in the minstrel shows as entertainment they would portray blacks as barbaric as um uh, capable of great violence uh sexual predators slovenly um sing for their supper kind of a thing you know, it was this way that they tried to portray them in common literature and entertainment at the time. And so the, the laws took on those. And they really were intended at the beginning because part of what the Emancipation Proclamation said was established that um, that blacks were equal. And in 1890, Pessy versus Ferguson established, or I guess by Supreme Court, separate but equal was okay. And they believed that because of the 14th Amendment having voting rights and being declared that you're not three-quarters of a person – that if they allowed black, because there was a much larger black population in the South at the time than there was of the white population. And part of the original Emancipation Proclamation was, if you've heard this, 40 acres and a mule, was to, because, because the black slaves at the time didn't have skills. Many of them were not allowed to learn how to read and write. Uh, they were they all the skills that they had were either you know blacksmith or farming or something to do with maintaining a plantation, and so part of the the reparation was to give them the ability to make a living, but that was foregone um, when. Uh, Taken that was taken off the table as part of the compromise, okay, to give the to get the 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 states to unite again. So because Plessy versus Ferguson didn't violate the Fourteenth Amendment, it still had equality. It just said it was separate for equal, and so that sort of set the stage. You had black codes that were starting, and then that really cemented in the segregation stuff. So fast forward, we there was um, you ha- you saw this. So during this period of time, going into the 1920s, where there were a lot of there were there was a fight to become independent. There was race riots. There was the Red Summer race riots of 1919. In 1920, you had the um, Tulsa race riots that now is you know part of of an issue it was during memory uh, may 31st june 1st where they now say that um that there was um 600 6000 it was 1921 and it's also called the black wall street massacre um more than 800 people were admitted to hospitals and 6000 black residents were interned at large facilities it was basically swept under the rug 
and nobody talked about it. it wasn't in history books or anything until 1996, 75 years after the massacre. So this is why you're just like, oh, how come we didn't know about that? Well, it was a deep, dark secret. And so the Oklahoma Commission to study the, tel- the Tulsa race riot of 1921, they, the final report was, was, took them five years. And then there was a park dedicated in 2010. And so they reckon they, the entire area was burned in response to, and these five race riots started in response to a claim that a black man had attacked a white woman. And so there's estimated about 1.5 million real estate damage and 750,000 in personal property that in 2019 dollars would have been worth 32 million dollars. The property was never recovered nor compensated for, which doesn't really surprise you considering it's 1921. And so so th- there's that piece of it, right? You have to also understand that during this time when the reconstruction so from from this is from the emancipation proclamation to the end of reconstruction era okay to 1950 there was a study done to try to figure to understand like what was the lynching in america right there was at least 4075 lynchings in the southern states and but many of those were against World War One veterans that were African American, and part of that was they all had they had to do was have their uniform on, and they would be attacked because there was this fear, and it literally was said on the Senate floor in 1917. Mississippi Senator James K. Vardaman warned that the return of Black veterans to the South would inevitably lead to disaster. Once you impress the Negro with the fact that he is defending the flag and un- inflate his untutored soul with military airs, they would have defended our country. It was a short step to the conclusion that his political rights must be respected. And so whenever, whenever that would happen, it would, they would continue to, you know, re- repress the blacks that were in that community. And so I had, um, so when I look back and I look at this and you think about, it wasn't just the social economic inequality that you see from the separate but equal. Because on one hand, during that period of time, from the 1900s to 1920, the reason why you had the Black Wall Street of Tulsa was because as businesses were separate but equal and blacks would not get service in white establishments the 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 black enterprise um they went out and they they started their own businesses they did just that they they you had hair everything that you would need to run a well for a well-run society auto repair restaurants hotels banks Hair salons, barbershops, you know, air, car, everything. People that sold cars, lawyers, life insurance, all that stuff. There were black-owned businesses that catered to the black customers. And they were in 
a lot of these communities that had always been the black communities and uh and they thrived um and 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 who knows if they had gone on like that we would have probably very different we wouldn't have inner city decays we would have thriving black communities you might have some crossover you know because people just like having yards or people just like being able to walk downstairs and go to a restaurant. You know, you have a lot of people that live or are able to live all over the place now for the most part. But you also have large areas of inner cities that are desolate. And this came came to my, to my I'm going to come back to the war veterans thing in a second, because it came to my great realization on this. When my daughter was getting ready to go off to college, she was going to be going, she was actually, she was going to be going to Georgia State. We had paid outrageous for um, a dorm room at Georgia State her first year. And, um, and so I, I had seen what had been happening in Atlanta. There had been a renaissance of a certain area that was an older area. And it was kind of a, I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't your, it had historically had been a black community, but you had had a lot of gentrification of that community around the stadium, parts around the stadium over in what we call East Atlanta, um, and then what became the Fourth Ward. And so Fourth Ward is a historical term for that community. And so it's on down the road, if you will, from MLK and Auburn Avenue with so much of the black history is in Atlanta. And I and and a lot of it was triggered and stimulated by this belt line that's going around Atlanta. And I said, okay, where's the next place that the belt line's going to be built? I'm going to go buy a house over there that my daughter can live in, and um and I can rent it out the rest of it, and then it'll become this you know great investment property when the rest of the belt line's over there and the, and the same sort of economic development happens over there. Uh, that has happened over here in um, on the west side. So I started doing a deep dive into where the Beltline was going, driving around, looking at houses in that area, and just going like, gosh, why isn't there more businesses in here? Why aren't there restaurants? What happened? I'm driving down in MLK, and I see these beautiful older homes that it, on a different side of town would be worth a million dollars. But over there, they're $150,000. Why is that? They're the same style of home. They're the same sort of, you know, but they, they, they are old and run down compared to the other ones. Why is that? And I discovered this thing called redlining. And I was like, what? They actually did that? <laughs> and so, and so I had... Co- and and the irony of it is, well, come, and so I started looking into that. And so if you're not if you're not familiar with red line is, it's where lines were drawn around these communities that were considered they were it was like the best communities, the better communities, the struggling communities, and the bad communities. And the bad communities where there was was less economic opportunity, there was more poverty, there was this, that, or the other. They were redlined. And so banking laws and insurance laws and lending laws and credit laws all got caught up in this. 
and how it happened, again, back to some of the best intentions, was coming out of the Great Depression with the New Deal. Part of what they, there was a lot of, not unlike our recession, um, the Great Recession, there was an attempt to help the banks, help the homeowners that had been foreclosed on or were having trouble to be able, for banks to be able to help them and restructure those loans and do all this. But then the part of doing that, they needed to figure out how to, um, like, you know, assess the risk, so to speak. So what ended up happening was, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here, make sure I get the the phrases right. It's called, um, oh, here we go. Redmine started at a federal agency between Homeowner Loan Corp, H-O-L-C. It was part of the New Deal. And it was um, and it was what established Redmine. And so this is back again, 1920s. And so what do you have happening? You have black communities that are, um, are you know, thriving. And because local communities and, and the powers that be are allowed to um, are allowed to, to, to restrict the access to capital in those areas, it slowly strangled those communities. Black businesses couldn't get equity, couldn't get um, business loans. They couldn't get working capital loans. Um, the homeowners couldn't uh, couldn't get re, you know refinance their homes for better interest rates or be able to do what most people do that we I take we've taken granted but home equity loans to be able to fix it up, right? So you know the, so the, the the cash flow within those communities gets strangled hold. And then you have businesses that want to come in there and maybe put a business in there or develop in there. It's harder for them to go into those communities to get the money that they need because no investor goes into a community, whether they're building an apartment complex or building a strip center, you know, a strip mall, you know, a a commercial commerce area, or they're putting in a, a, a car dealership. Whatever it is, they don't go in there with 50% cash up front. It's almost impossible to do that. You have to really, really, really want to be in that area and be flush with cash to be able to do that. And redlining said that's what you had to do. Where most people can buy a house at 10% or 15% down with the rest of, of equity, in those communities that were redlined, you could not do it. And on the link that I have in my thing, you can see the map of Atlanta, and it's no surprise on the areas that we have. So even though so that so that went on, okay. So for the people that were already living in those communities, it was hard, right? Then fast forward to World War II and the GI Bill. The GI Bill was something that really 
spurred on the growth of the middle class in America for us to create really three classes and for people that had been impoverished to be able to come out of poverty or low income and become thriving middle income. And part of that was, you know, oh, go into the military, you could get the education, you could serve your country. And even though so much had happened to the World War I veterans, there was 1.2 million African Americans, black Americans that signed up and enlisted to be in World War II. Now, at the time, most of them really weren't doing combat until we started to lose a lot of, of white lives. And we needed more actual soldiers on the thing. So, so they were you know, moved up to the, to the front lines and, um, and able to participate. I guess participate is not really the right word, but you know, be a part of that. And they had this GI Bill that when they came back, they would be able to get access to education, be able to get access to this, these properties. They were going to get access to being able to get their home, own, home. They would get VA benefits. But once again, the ugly face of racism stopped that from really, really happening. And so you had the wide disparity of the bill's implementation continued to drive the growing gaps in wealth, educational, and civil rights between white and black Americans. And while the GI Bill didn't language didn't actually exclude African Americans, it was structured in a way that shut the doors for the 1.2 million of those black veterans, even though they had been in segregated ranks. When the lawmakers began, this is from the article that's um, referenced in the in my the uh, show notes when lawmakers began drafting the GI bill in 1944, some Southern Democrats feared that returning black veterans would use public sympathy for veterans to advocate against Jim Crow laws to make sure the GI bill largely benefited white people. The Southern Democrats drew on the taxes that had previously previously used to ensure that the new deal. Okay. Remember back when the red line started helped as few black people as possible. During the drafting of the law, the chair of the House Veterans Committee, Mississippi Congressman, what is it with Mississippi Congressman, John Rankin, played hardball and insisted that the program be administered by individual states instead of federal government. He got his way. Rankin was known for his, his absolute racism. He defended segregation, opposed interracial marriages, and, and even proposed legislation to confine and deport the whole Japanese heritage during World War II thing. For example, in 1947, only two out of the 3,200 VA-guaranteed home loans in 13 Mississippi cities went to black borrowers. And in New York and even northern New Jersey, fewer than 160 of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill supported home purchases by non-whites. The gentleman that had sent me the video of Wilson, when we had our conversation, he said, yeah, his grandpappy wasn't able he was a veteran and he wasn't able to get a house in um on long island where in levitan where everybody else was getting it and and part some of that was because just by the nature of of how they had left the military they were considered dishonorably discharged even though they honorably had served the mil our military 
All right. So, so as you see, that has, has hindered it. And and I, when I, when I read um, Michelle Obama's becoming, this is one of the things that I understood how the lack of equality back 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago created a, a foundation where blacks just really had a much harder time if education and and wealth a uh, home ownership are your foundations for creating long-term wealth within your family then if you don't have access to those or equal access to those then you're in you're by the very nature of that inhibited in your progress and so she talks about um this uh dandy her who arrived in Chicago in the early 1930s in theory would have found a good job and a pathway to college, but the reality was far different. Jobs were hard to come by limited at least somewhat by the fact that managers of some of the big factories in Chicago regularly hired European immigrants over African-American workers. Like they were hired, they were, it's documented. They would hire German refugees and rather than black Americans. So Dandy took what he could find, setting pins in a bowling alley, freelancing as a handyman. Gradually, he downgraded his hopes, letting his idea of college go. Think he trained to become an electrician instead, but this too was quickly thwarted. If he wanted to work as an electrician, carpenter, or a plumber, for that matter, on any of the big sites in Chicago, you needed a union card. But if you were black, you couldn't get a union card. This particular form of discrimination altered the destiny, destinies of generations of African-Americans, including many – now, and keep in point, this is Chicago. This is not Birmingham or Biloxi or someplace like that. This is Chicago, which, you, which most people assume that the North wasn't discriminatory. It, it was pervasive across the United States, period, Okay. The opportunity and eventually their aspirations. So as a as a carpenter, Southside wasn't allowed to work in the larger construction firms that offered our steady pay for long-term projects, given he couldn't join a labor union. Her great-uncle Terry, Robbie's husband, had abandoned a career as a plumber for the same reason, instead of becoming a Pullman porter. This was also Uncle Pete on my mother's side. He'd been unable to join a taxi driver's user, union and instead turned to drive an unlicensed jit- jitney picking up customers who lived in the less safe parts of the West Side where normal cabs didn't like to go. And they were highly intelligent, able-bodied men who were denied access to stable, high-paying jobs, which in turn kept them from being able to buy homes and, guess what, redlined, and guess what, GI Bill, send their kids to college and save for retirement. It pained them, I know, to be cast aside, to, to be st- stuck in jobs that they were overqualified for to watch white people leapfrog past them at work, sometimes training new employees they knew they knew might one day become their bosses, and it bred within each of them at least a basic level of resentment and mistrust. You never quite knew what the other folks saw you to be. So, you know, she goes on and she talks about her family and, of course, her opportunities and the things that she did and the discrepancies in the schools. Well, let me bring this back to this thing that people say. So, because I've got about 10 more minutes in this, if I stay within the long line, and I appreciate you for continued listening, because I didn't even get into the war on drugs, the broken window 
policies that also targeted inner cities. It was a, intended to keep, in theory, keep those communities safe. But in reality, it was used to incarcerate more black men that did not, and young men that fractured the families. And, you know, they, without the lack of economic opportunity and education opportunities, because our society is also based on our public school system, it's based, is funded through property taxes. So the better schools are where they're higher value of homes. But if your home can't, is, is intentionally limited on its value and kept down, then therefore the amount of money that goes to the schools, the public schools and the education that's offered, the programs that are offered, they also would count as the quality of a neighborhood, the number of parks. But when you don't also have property taxes to fuel your government, you can't fund parks acquisitions and maintenance of parks. So it all becomes this spiral that you can almost, you can't even like reach down deep enough to pull it back up. Now, I thought with the Opportunity Zone funds that it was a great opportunity. Kerry Booker had signed on it for the inner cities. I think Kay, I'm trying to remember the guy, that the, the Republican senator that signed on it for the rural areas. Because what you see in, in, in the devastation and lack of education and the lack of, of economic opportunity in the inner cities for primary black communities also exists in, Appalach- in the Appalachian Mountains and the coal mining and in some of these areas in the Midwest. We think about this as a southern thing, but when you look at the charts that are on in the, the links that I have, it's not just the southern thing. This happened out in the Midwest as well, all through the Midwest. And so, you know, you have um, have this, these discrepancies that say you, there, you have to have reform that doesn't do it based on the value of the property. But when I looked at the Opportunity Zone funds, I said, okay, this is a great time. Now, granted, the Fair Housing Act, of 2018, no, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 banned red line, redlining. They banned it. They said it's no longer legal. But in 2018, there were still 150 communities that had redlined restrictions on them for loans and for insurance and for all the other things that go on within those communities that are needed for businesses to thrive. It was still going on in 2018, two years ago, 150 communities. Well, guess what? Opportunity Zone Fund came out in the, with, the tax, the, with the Tax Act of 2017. And uh, in 2018, I guess. And when it was getting ready to be implemented, there were studies and guidelines. And, and their goal was to get investors, individual investors, institutional investors to invest in these communities that had low economic, low job, the low job rate, low value of property that were, you know, decaying inner cities and struggling suburban, suburban areas and rural areas, excuse me, and to, to cause investment in there that was long-term. It was at least a 10-year investment because you get your capital gains um, voided on your return on that investment. And there are some great stuff has been doing up in Detroit, uh, the one of the black owners of um, of um, Quicken Loans had sold his interest in a casino to go take a hundred and some odd million dollars and put it to work in Detroit in revitalizing that, creating thousands of jobs 
black empowerment coming back and to Wilson's thing saying, step in and help your own. And I don't want to say it that way, but if it's not just about the green at that point in time, when, when you can, there's all kinds of options. You have to be very co very proactive and very determined to yes, give an unfair advantage to black and even women enterprises because they we're there because it hasn't been there before and we're it's so far behind the eight ball less than 5% of less than 5% of the angel investment money goes into women enterprises even less than that goes into black enterprises and some say, well, it's chicken and egg. How many black entrepreneurs are trying to get venture capital money? Well, part of it could be that they don't believe that they can get it. But even then, you can, under the JOBS Act, you as local chamber of commerce can pull your money and help rebuild and, and back where a loan won't back an enterprising young entrepreneur, black entrepreneur that wants to own a franchise and services community or own a, a business that the community needs in that area, you can be the private bank for them and, and get and make money doing it. And they'll, and it will be a business that will thrive. And it, and then that person will be successful and go. So if you, whether you're black or white listening to this and you have the means to influence investment in these areas, you must step up and be a part of that. I found out that they're one of the reasons why there weren't accelerators and developer de- and and um, incubators in the HBCUs that I talked about at the beginning of this was because it was redlined up until 2018. There were no dorms built there. There were no apartment complexes built for those students. There were no businesses being put in there, and it continued to decay because of redlining and so it it's still that this whole thing still exists it's still part of it and it's part of what you need to understand that we must we we can come out of this and we can get to where uh, uh, that just on the social economic side but we must invest it's for all of our own good all of our own economic good to invest in these communities that have been strangled for so long. And I didn't get to, there's good news being done. There, had, there's, in my tool notes, in my notes, I have a link for the 21 black-owned banks. They have $4.7 billion under management, providing loans to small businesses, churches, and other community organizations in the black community. Now, that's a drop in the pan compared to the rest of the banking system, but there are 21 black-owned banks. You also have um, a number of, of um, VCs and initiatives, and there's so many initiatives within the, the black community, Black Girls STEAM, Black Girls Code, trying to elevate young black men and women to, to accept their full potential to get beyond the language and the things that have emotionally and psychologically held them down 
to uplift themselves and and go after science because they can they can they can do science as good as anybody else, right? And so why not be the next Bill Gates and be a programmer? Why not have these kind of things come out of the black community? And with that success, with your success, turn around and lift up. Let's don't do handouts. Let's do hand ups. Let's teach more wealthy black people on how to be black angel investors and VCs on the potential of the black entrepreneurs that they see out there that you address their own racial bias when they're doing that and make a concerted effort just like 8A in the set-asides that are done with that. And for the record, there is no more affirmative action on law and books, okay, that comes up. I looked it up. Um, but let's let's make a concerted effort to 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 funnel a certain amount of money into businesses that are black owned, that are going into these communities, that can reap the benefits of an opportunity zone impact, hub zones to offset capital gains, to be able to reap the benefits of that and take advantage of that in such a way that we create wealth all around. I also want to point you if you go there or just, you know, afrotech.com has a lot of great content when it comes. That's where I got the black-owned banks. That's where I got the list of VCs. KevinTPayne.com has a list of the top VC firms that are, that are um, focused on black enterprises. You also have um, the top 100 black businesses that are in – BlackEnterprise.com, BE100s. So educate yourself. If you're a white person listening to this, please educate yourself. And educate yourself at the history that has led to what we have here. Don't just look at the surface of the folks. Yeah, we, ha- we have had a black president. And that's great. And some people would say it's about time, and some people say I can't believe that he did it considering all of the racism that is in America. But we also have so much more to be done because of the setbacks from the 1920s when we started to see this, and then we have the, the clamping down and the, just the, the stranglehold of the Jim Crow laws that were giving free reign to go and, and hinder the progress of the black community. And then again, when we had the surge of the middle class in the 1940s after World War II in the 1950s, and we had, still had segregation, but you had even worse ability to move on beyond that until we finally had the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But we, there was still... And, and, and technically, it ended the Jim Crow laws, but guess what? Red line was still around. It still was pervasive in there. And so, you know, I just I want to encourage you to understand that Black lives matter, Black businesses matter, and I don't know I don't know any Black people that want to hand out. They want to hand up. They just don't they just want the barriers to be removed, the obstacles to be removed. They want their God given right 
and ability to succeed and to believe that their family can, can live and prosper in America to be a reality. And so I have to draw this to a conclusion now. If you are listening live, you're not listening anymore because it cuts off. But uh, um, please go to karenrands.co, go to the blog, get the rest of this. I'm going to finish writing up the article that I started in the show notes to expand upon this and get this done so that you can have these links. And hopefully this will will do my part within the world that we are today to move the ball forward, to open conversations about racism in America, black prosperity and economic opportunity, and put a shining star at where we want to be and where we want to go. And my little piece of the puzzle as to how we get beyond where we are now by understanding the history and understanding what led to where we are so that we can move on and fix it and become the greatest country that we were intended to be, but we have never yet risen up to be. To truly be that shining light upon the hill. And with that, thank you for tuning in to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast. This is Karen Rands, Onwards and Upwards, and I am now going to play a small clip that just talks about some of the services we offer and things that we're, we can make available to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.